Okay, today is December the 21st, 2010. Now, I'll remind you this Friday, we will not have Friday night at the movies because it's Christmas Eve. And most people are going to be doing something else on that night. So, and, and don't forget <clears throat> that we're going to have um, the Christmas play on, it will be the 27th of December. That's Monday night, the first Monday after, yeah, that's the first Monday after we have Christmas. 6.30. I believe is what's going to be 6.30. 6.30. Okay. Let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another beautiful night, another opportunity to be here to grow in grace and knowledge. We thank you for your word. We pray that you will help us to focus. There's a lot going on this time of year, but we need to set it all aside and let your word speak to us. We pray that we will concentrate, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Did you all see the big moon tonight? I saw it when it first came up. Did anybody see it when it first cleared the horizon? Dark orange. Full, just beautiful. So I ran in and got my camera. And I actually found it. Usually I can't find it when I'm trying to get a picture. And there's a setting on it for night. Because I've taken pictures at night before. Couldn't find it. And I was going through the camera... And it just goes to show you how fast a really inspiring moment can be because I wanted to catch it on on film, put it on the camera. And the more I jostled around with that camera, the more uninspiring it became. And you only have a few, uh, a matter of minutes at the most because the, the sun is rising, it's losing that big orange color, and it's getting smaller and brighter instead of that orange. <clears throat> anyway, just to show you how fickle our minds are, just some little something like that. I would have done better never to have gone and got the camera to begin with. I could have just sat there and enjoyed one of God's creations. Beautiful. I don't remember seeing the moon that big, that orange before, coming right over the horizon. Anyway... Thank the Lord for rebound. I did have a little victory. I did not crush my camera, even though I was thinking about it. Okay, if you'll turn your Bibles to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll pick up our study this evening in verse 6 and 7. What is it uh, from verse 3 to verse, what is it, 11? 10 or 11 or 12? It's all one sentence. Over 200, it's 213 words in the Greek. 
So I just threw in the towel as far as teaching you in one unit of thought, which is a sentence on this one, and I just started going to verses. So we have verse 6 of Second Thessalonians chapter 1. God is just. Uh, by the way, you can see it up here. I have it for you on the notes here also. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. You know, we should not be vindictive. We should be forgiving. But we do have to note that that is somewhat comforting, isn't it? That God is going to pay back trouble to those who trouble us. Helps us to leave it in the Lord's hands. That is, vengeance and retribution. And give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire and his powerful angels, with his powerful angels. So, when we're, when we feel justified in taking revenge, we can go here and be able to have solace in knowing that we can always depend on God to take care of those who have wronged us. And then, of course, there's, of course, Romans 12:19, "Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, "Vengeance is my mine, I will repay," says the Lord." So the Lord is going to take care of it, but of course, it's always in His own way and in His own time. So we are not to get pushy. We are to have patience. And even if we don't know when he takes care of it or how he takes care of it, we can know for certain that he will. He's going to do a much better job than we ever could. And then we went through some of these verses, Deuteronomy 32, 41 through 43. And he's talking about God taking vengeance on the adversaries. And how he can absolutely crush those that are harming his children. Psalm 94, verse 21 through 23. We also have another illustration. He's brought back the wickedness upon them. and will destroy them in their evil. Zechariah 2.5 Lord will be a wall of fire around her, referring to Jerusalem in the millennium. And I will be the glory in her midst. This is, of course, Jesus Christ. Zechariah 2, 8 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. He will pay back trouble. We already looked at this. It's Philipsis, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. means to crush, to press, to compress, to squeeze, to break. All these things happen. What I was thinking about doing to my camera a few hours ago. Had to leave it in the Lord's hands. Tribulation, trouble, anguish, and affliction. And then we had several of these psalms. 
Some of these are imprecatory psalms that was justified in the Old Testament, not so in our time. But God was implored by David and others. <clears throat> in one here we have, He is smitten the enemies on the cheek, shattered the teeth of the wicked, Psalm 3.7. Uh, break the arm of the wicked evildoers, Isaiah 49.26. I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh. They will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior. And you remember the Mighty One of Jacob. And then we read Psalm 58. <clears throat> and this is actually where we were going to start this evening, but I think I touched on this already. Some, would, some people have a, a difficult time when God is, is uh, wreaking vengeance and retribution upon those that are richly deserving it. And they are confused because they think, how can this repudiation uh, jive with His, with His mercy? Well, they all have mercy offered to them. Anyone, regardless of who they are or what they have done, has the grace of God extended to them. First of all, in the person of Jesus Christ, He's paid for their sins. And they could use their volition to turn, to turn away from their evil and accept the grace of God. That could happen at any time. But what people many times do not want to acknowledge is that those who richly deserve it will get it from the Lord. And I'm talking about justice. I'm talking about getting, giving them what they deserve. Some people, especially in our society, because we're such a mamby-pamby, uh, weak society today, we do have what they call capital punishment, if you can call it that. I wouldn't call it that. Being convicted of a heinous crime where people are, innocent people are murdered and worse, and the person spend 20 to 25 years in prison, having all their meals taken care of, they're actually just taken care of. They, they're, in a, they're in a cage. But, and then when it is time for them to expire and to go ahead and carry out the execution, it's in the form of an injection. There's no violence there that I can, I can tell. There was a time when there was the gas chamber. In fact, I've been to Huntsville, Texas. I've sit in old Sparky before. Have y'all ever been there, seen that? Hundreds, I think there was even in the thousands of people that were electrocuted. Now that will get your attention to sit in that thing and I bet they wouldn't have to worry about the, the wet the sponge on top of your head. I bet most of them were already sweating so much they didn't have to worry about that that much. But today what my point is that we are so so called sophisticated and mamby pamby that when you see the absolute justice of the Lord spoken of in the Bible in these terms, some people quiver. Some people just can't handle it. And yet, it doesn't bother the Lord because He is perfectly just and perfectly righteous. And His, His mercy is still extended, but people have to realize that they are responsible for their volitional decisions. And if you reject Jesus Christ and you decide to 
get on Satan's team, then you're going to have to have to suffer in the same way that Satan is going to have to suffer, even in the same place. Revelation chapter 19, verse 1 and 2. <clears throat> After these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because His judgments are true and righteous. I want you all to turn to We're going to be going to uh, Revelation chapter 19 shortly anyway. You might as well go there. And verse 2 is giving the reason while they're singing hallelujah. And why glory and power belong to our God, because His judgments are true and righteous. Do you all remember how our verse started? It started up here. God is just. So now we scroll down here to Revelation chapter 19, and we have a reiteration of that, don't we? Because His judgments are true and righteous. That means that God is just. For He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. So if you are familiar with eschatology, you'll know that in the tribulational period, there's going to be a one world religion. And that one world religion is characterized in the Bible as the great harlot, Babylon the Great, sometimes called the whore that rides the beast. And we've studied that when we were in Daniel. It's just explaining that God's judgments are true and righteous and He takes care of business. For the righteous... It is somehow easier to suffer at the hands of evil with the knowledge that the evil persecutor will not escape but will be brought to justice. The victim's temporary affliction is easier to bear when viewed against the eternal suffering of the afflictor. Now, not every person who wrongs you is going to have eternal suffering, but the unbelievers certainly will. And there's enough of those to go around. We're going to take apart verse 7, the first part, and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. The suffering and adversity we face now is only temporary. Aren't you glad? We go through spells. Sometimes we have the highs that we might call them where we are somewhat separate from the suffering. But there are times when we're in the valleys, in the low parts, where we do have suffering. Is that not true? Every person's life is like that. So we can always, we can always trust that the suffering is only temporary. I love the phrase, this too shall pass away. All things are changing constantly. It's kind of like the weather in Texas. At least it used to be that way as it is now for the, I don't know how many weeks we've gone through in the middle of, well, we're at the end of the December now, right close to Christmas. 
This is uh, the 21st of December, and here I am in short sleeve shirt. We have the air conditioner on, and we haven't seen rain in many months. So it used to be that you could depend on the weather changing, but it's just about pretty well lately you can count on it not changing. Tomorrow will probably be just like it was today. Only there'll be a front that comes down and get cold a little bit, and then it'll go back to warm again. So we'll just we'll see. But with regards to suffering, it is temporary. It is also bearable for those who are humble and filled with the Holy Spirit. And I asked you last time, where do you find that in the Bible? I, I, I think most of you, if not all of you, would agree to that and accede to the fact that when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, that you, when you endure undeserved suffering, that it's always bearable. But we are weak on bibliology, so I'm going to keep throwing it out there. Can anybody tell me what book you can find a promise regarding that? 1 Corinthians 10.13, right. Do you all remember that? When you're talking to someone who is in the pit, who's experiencing horrible pain and suffering, that's the verse you want to go to. If they don't know how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you need to tell them if they're not a believer, of course, give them the gospel. Wouldn't that be an incentive? I can guarantee you that your pain will be bearable if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and if you're filled with the Holy Spirit. The idea... If payback has uh, the the the, pay, the idea is should be is uh, payback has a dual meaning. It can mean to pay someone back for doing you wrong, or it can mean to pay someone back for do for something good for you. You remember in our verse right here, and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. I guess I'll open my Bible because I don't. I have to scroll so far in this 24 font that people don't like it. They don't like it when you scroll through all that. So we're in 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1. Verse 6 is the one I'm looking for. Look in your Bibles. For after all, it is only just for God to what? Repay. Repay is the same as payback. To pay back with, reflect, with affliction those who afflict, afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. So we're looking at payback here. And so payback can be something that's good. Repaying back a good deed are, it can, well, many times, even in the, in the street vernacular of our day, when something or someone treats you unkind or unfairly or wrong, there's a saying, and I can't say it because there's a word that is not to be spoken, especially in church, but it says, payback is... is um, Harsh. I'll just put it that way. 
Payback is harsh. That's when someone does does you wrong. And that's, that is the, the modus operandi of most people. It's nearly an automatic thing that when someone wrongs you, everyone else is expecting, okay, when are they going to get paid back? We don't have that luxury, do we? No matter what, we are commanded to love our neighbor. Are we to love our neighbor as ourselves? Well, the New Testament tells us we are to love our neighbor, who is anyone we come in contact with, as Christ loved us. And so that's with unconditional and personal love. So we don't look at payback in the way that Christ, our God, can pay back. If you're God, then you can pay back and it's okay. If you're not God, leave it alone. That's pretty simple, isn't it? But we should be looking at payback with regards to someone who has done something good for us. So it can mean to pay someone back for something good that's done something good for you. Has the former our verse has the former meaning and the latter meaning here in verse seven. And we endure hardship and undeserved suffering. As we do that, it is important to remember that it's only temporary and relief is coming. Now, for some of you, it's hard for uh, to. You don't know exactly what to do when someone's gracious to you. When someone goes out of their way to be kind to you, you want to do something back, a good kind of payback. But receiving grace graciously is just as important as extending grace graciously. So when someone does something gracious for us, we are to accept it in a gracious way. And you know the best way to accept a gift or something done on your behalf with a, a very with the love behind it is to just simply say thank you. Those two words cover it. Doesn't have to be any embellishments. Those two words are so important. Thank you. And when you do that, there's no debt. Because, see, it was a gift. It was something that was done with no payment attached. And some people can get to the point to where it's so hard for them to accept a gift that it's not that enjoyable giving a gift because someone feels indebted to you. I've never had that problem personally. I just anybody gives me something, hey, I'm glad, thank you. It's, that's it, and I'm too busy to try to keep accounts of who 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 owes who what. There is nothing owed in the Christian life with regards to grace giving, is there? There's no strings. There's nothing attached. So we need to learn, especially this time of year, to be gracious givers. Meaning that when you give something, no matter what it is, whether it's a gift, whether it's your time, whatever it is, that there's no strings attached and forget about keeping the accounts balanced. And it's the same thing on the receiving end. We are to accept it as a gift, a gracious gift. And those two words cover it. If there is any debt, which there really isn't, 
But I think it's incumbent upon everyone who is grace-oriented and has a true appreciation, capacity for life and for grace, just to say thank you. I don't know about you, but when I give a gift, whatever it is, and someone says thank you, I'm appreciative. I'm glad. To me, that covers it. The, the message was sent. It's not the item. It's the motivation and the love behind it that matters. And when I give it and they say thank you, I think, hey, that's great. Now, when I give a gift like that and they don't say thank you, maybe they're really thankful for it, but they just weren't reared very well. Because when I was being raised as a child, it was just automatic if someone gave me something. My mom or my dad were looking at me and, boy, those two words better be coming and they better be coming quick. And we were taught that way. As I got older, I recognized that that's all that's required. But it, I think it is required. Even towards God, the Bible t- tells us we should have gratitude we should have a sense of appreciation. That's what praise is. It's, 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 it's lauding. It, it's, it's explaining how appreciative you are for something. Something that was not due, but was offered and given out of love. I just thought I would tear there for just a moment. Luke 14, verses 13 through 14. But when you give a reception, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind. This is Christ speaking, by the way. And you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What what is our verse? What are we talking about here? It's giving a time frame for blessings that are going to be received. And so here we have in Luke 14, 14, another... Illustration. You know that there are some people really that they don't want any poor friends? They don't like poor friends. <laughs> I don't know why y'all are laughing. Just about all the kind of friends I have are poor. And I'm right in there with them. So what? But there are some people recognize that if you have poor friends, well... A lot more that you need to, to do, usually. They always, have, they always have need for something. And according to this verse, give. And, and listen, when you give, if you give trying to keep score, or if you give and you're thinking, <clears throat> well, I know if I give this, this person going to appreciate it, and I, can, I know what I'm going to expect next. Shame on you. That's not giving. Giving is giving and then forgetting about it. That's what giving is. And if you have the poor, see, this is what I love about God's work and about Jesus Christ is He knows us. Isn't this kind of, some people say, this is kind of insulting. But Jesus is speaking to who we really are. Before I left, it was talking about the charities. Uh, this year, how many, how much, how many billions people gave uh, all in all, whether it's up or down or whatever, and they always go by the amounts. But it's not the amount, and it's not what you give. You know, giving is a, 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 a sticky wicket. 
for both sides. There's not many people who really know how to give. And there's not a whole lot of people that really know how to receive. So, if someone moves into the area and they're poor, invite them to your parties. That's what this is saying, isn't it? When you, when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Invite them. I guarantee you, if somebody is wealthy and moves into a new area, people are clamoring to befriend them. And it should be just the opposite. Because the Bible is saying, you have your reward. It's coming. For you will be, what? Repaid, or you could say, paid back. And be, pa- be paid back in a big way. Old Testament saints will receive their resurrection bodies at the second advent. And I have one, two, three, four references there. Now, nobody is writing these down. There's not many places you, you can go to find those verses right there. I was at a conference one time in Dallas, pre-trade conference. There was a guy in the back that everyone knew. And there was about 400 people there. And he was way in the back, so everyone heard his question. And someone made a statement about Old Testament saints receiving their resurrection body at the second advent. And this person, who was well known, said, Who says, where can you find that in the Bible? And I'm giving you those verses. Out of the 400, nobody responded to that. So I'm telling you, these are important verses. Because a lot of people don't know that there are different stages to resurrection. And people focus so much on the rapture, the resurrection, the resurrection bodies that we will receive. First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 17 and following. That they, they absolutely miss out. They, just, they don't know where to go. So we have... Job 19:25 through 26. Now that's that's not stating it outright, but the context suggests that Job is going to get his resurrection body at the second advent. Same with Isaiah 26, verse 19 through 21. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, and Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 through 6 are right on. There's no equivocating about those. So. The reason I gave you those is because Luke 14.14 says, For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Old Testament saints are going to be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous, which is going for them to be the second advent. And I gave you those verses. We are never to repay evil with evil. We're talking about repayment here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always speak after that which is good for one another and for all men. I don't know if you all remember, but this is what launched us into our doctrine of evil. Do you all remember that? Well, not long ago, we were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, the next phrase is, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with powerful angels. 
So this is saying when they can expect this repayment to be taken care of. We are given the time frame when all this will take place, and that's the second advent. When our Lord returns at the second advent to set up His kingdom on earth, He will be revealed because every eye shall see Him. And we get that from Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. Even so, Amen. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible about the rapture anyone seeing Christ apart from those who are being raptured. But it makes a specific point here that every eye is going to behold Jesus Christ. So when we have in our verse, this will happen when our Lord Jesus is revealed, this is another clue that it's not talking about the rapture, but it's talking about the second advent. Because the revelation of Jesus Christ does not take place at the rapture. That's when there's going to be resurrection of the dead and a translation of those who are alive. You all know the difference, right? Resurrection will be those who already, their bodies are in the grave, they'll be resurrected. Those who are alive at that time will be translated. They won't, expect, uh, they won't experience physical death, so their bodies will instantly be changed. They call that a translation. And everyone's going to be wondering what happened. Well, if they saw Jesus Christ, they could kind of have a hint what was going on. But it doesn't appear that anyone is going to see that apart from believers who are being raptured at the time. The next thing we talk about in this phrase is the blazing fire. He'll be coming from heaven in a blazing fire. This is not the first time that our Lord is revealed in a blazing fire. He appeared in a blazing bush to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. That's right. You all know that. That was Jesus Christ. That was called a theophany. Jesus Christ appearing in different forms prior to His incarnation. And He descended on Mount Sinai in blazing fire. This is Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. And we also have this in Exodus 24:17 and Daniel 7 through 10. Years ago, I saw, or that would be Daniel 7, verse 10. Uh, years ago, I saw a video that was, the whole uh, video had to do with where is Mount Sinai. And they didn't, usually they think it's in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula. But this gave very, very strong evidence that it was located not on the Sinai Peninsula, but over uh, further east than that. And it even showed a, a, a video of a mountain that they thought that it was truly Mount Sinai. And I can still remember that mountain, about the top fourth of that mountain, was black as coal. And the rest of it looked like a regular mountain. And they said when he came down 
on Mount Sinai, it was blazing fire. And they said, even after all these uh, centuries, that that mountain is still black from being burnt from that part up. Maybe I'll get that, if I could find that uh, video and show it to you someday. It's really um, very interesting. It shows that when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, there was only one place that they think that it could have happened where you would have an area big enough right there on the shore to be able to accommodate maybe two million people. And there was a land bridge right there. The the depths were tre- tremendous depths on each side of this land bridge. Now, land bridge, what I'm talking about, is just an area that came up out of the depths, maybe, I don't know, half mile wide, that went all the way across the Red Sea. It was underwater, but it wasn't like going uh, several hundred or a thousand feet deep. It was only maybe 50 feet deep, something like that, whatever. Very credible evidence, and it even shows satellites to show all this, satellite views. Anyway, I'm telling you all this because of the verses that talk about Mount Sinai is associated with blazing fire. Evidently, the Lord will be returning to earth at the second advent with angels. Well, this is news for some. Matthew 16:27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Interesting verse. Note, coming with His angels. Matthew 25:31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Mark 8:38. For whoever is ashamed of Me and My words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. 1 John chapter 1, verse 51. Uh, excuse me, John 1, 51. Thank you. And uh, he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, why is this? One of the things that makes this important, if you'll remember, is because at the rapture, it appears there's not going to be any, there will be no angels that Christ is coming alone. For the Lord will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. And when, if you remember when I taught that, this some take that as the archangel being there in his shout. But I don't. I think when it says, and he will descend from heaven with a shout, it's like the voice of an archangel. It's a simile. And there's no angels there. And so all of this, again, is more evidence. This is talking about the second advent. And I can't impress upon you enough to keep your advents straight. Not only the advents, but when Jesus Christ is coming, you have to keep that straight. There is so much confusion with regards to Christ coming again. Many times when the Bible talks about Christ coming again, it doesn't distinct it doesn't give you a clear-cut indication whether it's talking about the rapture or whether it's talking about the second advent. And what I'm doing is giving you keys 
in these in, uh, throughout the Bible that you'll be able to tell. Well, if it's talking about angels coming, it's not going to be the rapture. If it's talking about judgment, it's not going to be the rapture. If it's, if it's <clears throat> excuse me, up here we see that um, if everyone sees him, it's not going to be the rapture. These are things that we need to uh, keep straight. So we too will be, here's the, here's the good news too, we too will be returning with Christ when he returns to earth. The skies are going to be crowded, folks, when Jesus Christ returns. There's going to be untold numbers of angels that are returning with him and untold numbers of church age believers and Old Testament believers who are going to return. Now we'll already be in our resurrection bodies. The soul and spirit of the Old Testament saints are going to be coming back to reunite with their bodies. So that it's going to be, that's why I said it's going to be crowded in the skies. Those friendly skies. It's not going to be so friendly for those who are Christ haters. So. Isaiah 66 verse 15 and 16. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh. And those slain by the Lord will be many. Now there's no doubt whatsoever which return that's referring to. Fire and flames and chariots and swords slain. Boy, is that going to be a time. Zechariah 14.5 And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Holy ones comes from Hagios, it's referring to saints. Now, just for a little quick quiz, a little question, just to see if you're up to, on this. When he's talking about holy ones, is it talking about Old Testament saints or New Testament saints? Silence. No. Where is this coming from? Zechariah 14.5. They knew nothing about New Testament. They didn't even know there was going to be a church age. So this is referring to Old Testament saints because they didn't even know about the church age at that time. So this is referring to Old Testament saints. Holy ones, some people think that this is referring to angels, but it's talking about saints. And then we have Jude chapter 1, verse 14. And about these also, Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones, which are saints. Is this, what is this one? And about these also, Enoch, in the seventh generation of Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones, would be saints. Is that New Testament or Old Testament saints? It's got to be old. Who said it? Enoch. Enoch lived a long time ago. And Enoch ought to know about uh, leaving and returning because he left in a very unusual way. 
He was just taken. And then verse 8, we have dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So we have two things mentioned in here. First, those who the, the retribution is going to be the great judgment that will fall on unbelievers when Christ returns to set up his millennial kingdom. To those who do not know God is referring to negative volition and God consciousness. There will be untold numbers that are negative and they hadn't heard the gospel yet because they don't care about it. They, won't, they, they don't care about God. They're negative at God consciousness. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and this would be negative volition at gospel hearing. They have heard the gospel and they don't obey it. This is a, a stern rejection, obstinance not to believe, and that would be at gospel hearing. This event was prophesied by our Lord in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, and we refer to it as the baptism of fire. Baptism of fire. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. Go there. Very important verse right here. I just taught this to the young people last week. So all of this wrath that's going to be poured out, it's talking about fire coming down. It's all judgment and fire and swords and chariots and all this unbelievable toll that is going to be taken on the unbelieving when Christ returns. And John the Baptist spoke of it, John the Baptist being the herald of Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. This is John the Baptist, and he says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. Of course, he's talking about Jesus Christ there. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In verse 11, how many baptisms are spoken of there? Three. Yeah. He says, I baptize you with water. That's one. The, Holy, the, the, uh, the Lord is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So that's two more, isn't it? And then it goes on. And when it's talking about the baptism of fire, it goes on in verse 12 saying, And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear the threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That is a description of the baptism of fire. This is what's going to take place when Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, comes back and sets things straight on planet earth. There's not going to be any negotiations. There's not going to be any mamby-pamby anything. There is going to be judgmental fire that the world hasn't seen since the flood. So the baptism of fire. We only have a few minutes, but we'll get a point in anyway. This is the baptism of fire. All unbelievers were removed from earth once already by the flood. The next time it will be by fire. All unbelievers once already was removed from planet earth in the days of Noah. And they will be removed again, the baptism of fire, when Jesus Christ returns. We have Matthew 3, 11 through 12, Matthew 25, 31 through 33, Luke 3, verses 16 and 17, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 through 9, which is where we are currently studying. 
The baptism of fire is compared with what happened during Noah's day. Well, doesn't that stand to reason? It's only two times on the in earth's history where all unbelievers are going to be removed. One time was that the uh, flood with Noah, and the other one was or will be when Jesus Christ returns at the second advent. Let's turn to Matthew 24 for just a moment. Matthew 24, verse 36. <clears throat> you should be somewhat familiar with this because... We went over this some in 1 Thessalonians. Matthew 24, 36. But, word of contrast, of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Now, should that not give you a clue that this is not referring to the rapture? What happened in the days of Noah? Well, all unbelievers were removed from planet earth, and the earth continued on with eight believers. Verse 38, For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not understand until the flood came and took them away. I want you to underline took them away. Who did it take away? Unbelievers. There's no way that this can be. This is the comparison between two similar things, the second advent and the days of Noah and the flood. The baptism of fire and the flood took them away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So you can see already that there's no there's no possible comparison here. Of this, uh, there's no way that this can be referring to the rapture. He's talking about another time when all unbelievers were removed from planet Earth. And that's what, what the reason that's important, because when you go into verse 40 and 41, then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Verse 41, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. And a lot of people see that. Oh, well, that must be referring to the rapture. No, that's referring to those who are taken away are who? Unbelievers. Those that remain are believers. Um, turn to verse uh, Luke chapter 17. We have a parallel passage in this. Look at verse 26. Luke 17:26. Luke 17:26 And just as it happened in the days of Noah so shall it be also in the day of the son of man They were eating drinking and were marrying they were being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all destroyed who the unbelievers 
And it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating and they were drinking. They were buying. They were selling. They were planting. They were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Who did it destroy? Unbelievers. Unbelievers are taken off the earth. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Now that revealed means what? Second advent already. When the Son of Man comes, talking about the second advent. Drop down to verse 35. Therefore, excuse me, there will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Now again, some people have confused this in thinking it's the rapture, but look at verse 37. In answering, these are the disciples asked, they were asking the Lord, and answering they said to him, Where, Lord? In other words, where are these going to be taken? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also will the vultures be gathered. Is there going to be any bodies at the rapture? Any bodies left? No. Bodies are with the Lord, right? Going to be any vultures there? No. So this whole part is definitely speaking of the second advent. Part of the second advent is when Jesus Christ comes and he's going to wage war at Armageddon. And you talk about a bloodbath, it's going to be unbelievable. And the vultures... The Bible prophesies about how the vultures are going to come in and gorge themselves. And I've told you before, even at this very hour, Israel has a problem with vultures because there's so many of them, they multiply so much, they can't even, the, the, the pilots have to be careful where they fly to keep from hitting. There's so many vultures, they're getting ready for the feast. Now, it's important that you understand these things so that you can keep your. Dispensation straight, you can keep the advent straight, you can keep the coming straight. This is the foundation that you can build on to keep all these things straight. And there's not many people who can. But God requires it of us. We are the light that He depends on to help explain to others what's yet to come. And we'll pick this up next time. Let's close. Father, thank You for this time. We're so glad that you have it all under control. Your plan is perfect. It will come about exactly as you have foretold through your prophets at exactly the right time. We're so blessed that you have revealed these things to us so we can look forward to being taken out of the world, off this planet, before all this calamity takes place. It gives us a sense of urgency to give the gospel to those who are still lost, so that they won't have to go through this horrible time. So we thank you for all this. Pray that you'll help us to think about this so that we'll be quick, ready, and alert to tell whoever has an ear. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.